Chapter 4. The Food Question. Objections to paraffin oil as an atmosphere. Advantages of cheese as a traveling companion. A married woman deserts her home. Further provision for getting upset. I pack. Cussedness of toothbrushes. George and Harris pack. Awful behavior of Montmorency. We retire to rest. Then we discussed the food question. George said, Begin with breakfast. George is so practical. Now for breakfast, we shall want a frying pan. Harris said it was indigestible, but we merely urged him not to be an ass, and George went on. A teapot and a kettle and a methylated spirit stove. No oil. No oil, said George with a significant look, and Harris and I agreed. We had taken up an oil stove once, but never again. It had been like living in an oil shop that week. It oozed. I never saw such a thing as paraffin oil is to ooze. We kept it in the nose of the boat, and from there it oozed down to the rudder, impregnating the whole boat and everything in it on its way, and it oozed over the river and saturated the scenery and spoiled the atmosphere. Sometimes a westerly oily wind blew, and at other times an easterly oily wind blew, and sometimes it blew a northerly oily wind, and maybe a southerly oily wind. Whether it came from the Arctic snows or was raised in the waste of the desert sands, it came alike to us laden with the fragrance of paraffin oil. And that oil oozed up and ruined the sunset, and as for the moonbeams, they positively reeked of paraffin. We tried to get away from it at Marlow. We left the boat by the bridge and took a walk through the town to escape it, but it followed us. The, the whole town was full of oil. We passed through the churchyard, and it seemed as if the people had been buried in oil. The high street stunk of oil. We wondered how people could live in it. And we walked miles upon miles out Birmingham way, but it was no use. The country was steeped in oil. At the end of that trip, we met together at midnight in a lonely field under a blasted oak and took an awful oath. We had been swearing for a whole week about the thing in an ordinary middle-class way, but this was a swell affair. An awful oath never to take paraffin oil with us in a boat again, except, of course, in case of sickness. Therefore, in the present instance, we confined ourselves to methylated spirit. Even that is bad enough. You get methylated pie and methylated cake. But methylated spirit is more wholesome when taken into the system in large quantities than paraffin oil. For other breakfast things, George suggested eggs and bacon, which were easy to cook. Cold meat, tea, bread, but bread and butter, and jam. For lunch, he said, we could have biscuits, cold meat, bread and butter, and jam, but no cheese. Cheese, like oil, makes too much of itself. It wants the whole boat to itself. It goes through the hamper and gives a cheesy flavor to everything else there. You can't tell whether you were eating apple pie or German sausage or strawberries and cream. It all seems cheese. There is too much odor about cheese. I remember a friend of mine buying a couple of cheeses at Liverpool. Splendid cheeses they were, ripe and mellow, with a 200-horsepower scent about them that might have been warranted to carry three miles and knock a man over at 200 yards. I was in Liverpool at the time, and my friend said that I didn't mind. I was in Liverpool at the time, and my friend said that if I didn't mind, he would get me to take them back with me to London, as he should not be coming up for a day or two himself, and he did not think the cheeses ought to be kept much longer. Oh, with pleasure, dear boy, I replied, with pleasure. I called for the cheeses and took them away in a cab. It was a ramshackle affair, dragged along by a knock-kneed, broken-winded somnambulist. 
It was a ramshackle affair, dragged along by a knock-kneed, broken-winded somnambulist, which his owner, in a moment of enthusiasm, during conversation, referred to as a horse. I put the cheeses on the top, and we started off at a shamble that would have done credit to the swiftest steamroller ever built, and all went merry as a funeral bell, until we turned a corner. There, the wind carried a whiff from the cheeses full on our steed. It woke him up, and with a snort of terror, he dashed off at three miles an hour. The wind still blew in his direction, and before we reached the end of the street, he was laying himself out at the rate of nearly four miles an hour, leaving the cripples and stout old ladies simply nowhere. It took two porters as well as the driver to hold him in at the station, and I do not think they would have done it, even then, had not one of the men had the presence of mind to put a handkerchief over his nose and to light a bit of brown paper. I took my ticket and marched proudly up the platform, with my cheeses, the people falling back respectfully on either side. The train was crowded, and I had to get into a carriage where there were already seven other people. One crusty old gentleman objected, but I got in, notwithstanding, and putting my cheeses upon the rack, squeezed down with a pleasant smile, and said it was a warm day. A few moments passed, and then the gentleman began to fidget. Very close in here, he said. Quite oppressive, said the man next to him. And then they both began sniffing, and at the third sniff they caught it right on the chest, and rose up without another word and went out. And then a stout lady got up, and said it was disgraceful that a respectable married woman should be harried about in this way, and gathered up a bag and ate parcels and went. The remaining four passengers sat on for a while, until a solemn-looking man in the corner who, from his dress and general appearance, seemed to belong to the undertaker class, said it put him in mind of a dead baby, and the other three passengers tried to get out of the door at the same time and hurt themselves. I smiled at the black gentleman and said I thought we were going to have the carriage to ourselves, and he laughed pleasantly and said that some people made such a fuss over a little thing. But even he grew strangely depressed after we started, and so when we reached Crew, I asked him to come and have a drink. He accepted, and we forced our way into the buffet, where we yelled and stamped and waved our umbrellas for a quarter of an hour, and then a young lady came and asked us if we wanted anything. "'What's yours?' I said, turning to my friend." "'I'll have a half a crown's worth of brandy, neat, if you please, miss,' he responded. And he went off quietly after he had drunk it and got into another carriage, which I thought mean. From crew I had the compartment to myself, though the train was crowded. As we drew up to the different stations, the people, seeing my empty carriage, would rush for it. "'Here you are, Maria, come along, plenty of room.' "'All right, Tom, we'll get in here,' they would shout, and they would run along, carrying heavy bags, and fight round the door to get in first and one would open the door and mount the steps and stagger back into the arms of the man behind him. They would all come and have a sniff, and then drop off and squeeze into other carriages or pay the difference and go first. From Euston I took the cheeses down to my friend's house. When his wife came into the room she smelt round for an instant. Then she said, "'What is it? Tell me the worst,' I said. "'It's cheeses. Tom brought them in Liverpool and asked me to bring them up with me.' And I added that I hoped she understood that it had nothing to do with me." She she said that she was sure of it, but that she would speak to Tom about it when he came back. My friend was detained in Liverpool longer than he expected, and three days later, as he hadn't returned home, his wife called on me. She said, "'What did Tom say about those cheeses?' I replied that he had directed they were to be kept in a moist place and that nobody was to touch them. She said, "'Nobody's likely to touch them. Had he smelt them?' I thought he had, and added that he seemed greatly attached to them." "'You think you would be upset,' she queried, "'if I gave a man a sovereign to take them away and bury them?' "'I answered her that I thought he would never smile again. "'An idea struck her. "'She said, 
Do you mind keeping them for him? Let me send them round to you. Madam, I replied, for myself, I like the smell of cheese, and the journey the other day with them from Liverpool I shall ever look back upon as a happy ending to a pleasant holiday. But in this world we must consider others. The lady under whose roof I have the honor of residing is a widow, and for all I know possibly an orphan, too. She has a strong, may I say an eloquent, objection to being what she terms put upon. The presence of your husband's cheeses in her house she would, I instinctively feel, regard as a put-upon and it shall never be said that i put upon the widow and the orphan very well then my friend's wife said rising all i have to say is that i shall take the children and go to a hotel until those cheeses are eaten i decline to live any longer in the same house with them she kept her word leaving the place in charge of the charwoman who when asked if she could stand the smell replied what smell and who when taken close to the cheeses and told to sniff hard said she could detect a faint odor of melons it was argued from this that little injury could result to the woman from the atmosphere, and she was left. The hotel bill came to fifteen guineas, and my friend, after reckoning everything up, found that the cheeses had cost him eight and sixpence a pound. He said he dearly loved a bit of cheese, but it was beyond his means, so he determined to get rid of them. He threw them into the canal, but had to fish them out again, as the bargemen complained. They said it made them feel quite faint, and after that, he took them one dark night and left them in the parish mortuary, but the coroner discovered them and made a fearful fuss. He said it was a plot to deprive him of his living by waking up the corpses. My friend got rid of them at last by taking them down to a seaside town and burying them on the beach. It gained the place quite a reputation. Visitors said they had never noticed before how strong the air was, and weak-chested and consumptive people used to throng there for years afterwards. Fond as I am of cheese, therefore, I hold that George was right in declining to take any. We shan't want any tea, said George. Harris's face fell at this. But we'll have a good, round, square, slap-up meal at seven. Dinner, tea, and supper combined. Harris grew more cheerful. George suggested meat and fruit pies, cold meat, tomatoes, fruit, and green stuff. For drink, we took some wonderful sticky concoction of Harris's, which you mixed with water and called lemonade plenty of tea, and a bottle of whiskey, in case, as George said, we got upset. It seemed to me that George harped too much on the getting upset idea. It seemed to me the wrong spirit to go about the trip in. But I'm glad we took the whiskey. We didn't take beer or wine. They're a mistake up the river. They make you feel sleepy and heavy. A glass in the evening when you are doing a mooch round the town and looking at the girls is all right enough. But don't drink when the sun is blazing down on your head and you've got hard work to do. We made a list of the things to be taken, and a pretty lengthy one it was before we parted that evening. The next day, which was Friday, we got them all together and met in the evening to pack. We got a big gladstone for the clothes, and a couple of hampers for the victuals and the cooking utensils. We moved the table up against the window, piled everything in a heap in the middle of the floor, and sat round and looked at it. I said I'd pack. I rather pride myself on my packing. Packing is one of those many things that I feel I know more about than any other person living. It surprises me myself sometimes how many of these subjects there are. I impressed the fact upon George and Harris and told them that they had better leave the whole matter entirely to me. They fell into the suggestion with a readiness that had something uncanny about it. George put on a pipe and spread himself over the easy chair, and Harris cocked his legs on the table and lit a cigar. This was hardly what I intended. What I had meant, of course— was that I should boss the job, and that Harris and George should potter about under my directions, I pushing them aside every now and then with, Oh, you, here, let me do it. There you are, simple enough. 
really teaching them, as you might say. Their taking it in the way they did irritated me. There is nothing does irritate me more than seeing other people sitting about doing nothing when I am working. I lived with a man once who used to make me mad that way. He would loll on the sofa and watch me doing things by the hour together, following me around the room with his eyes wherever I went. He said it did him real good to look on at me, messing about. He said it made him, made him feel that life was not an idle dream to be gaped and yawned through, but a noble task, full of duty and stern work. He said he often wondered now how he could have gone on before he met me, never having anybody to look at while they worked. Now I'm not like that. I can't sit still and see another man slaving and working. I want to get up and superintend and walk around with my hands in my pockets and tell him what to do. It is my energetic nature. I can't help it. However, I did not say anything, but started the packing. It seemed a longer job than I had thought it was going to be, but I got the bag finished at last, and I sat on it and strapped it. Ain't you going to put the boots in? said Harris. And I looked round and found I had forgotten them. That's just like Harris. He couldn't have said a word until I'd got the bag shut and strapped, of course. And George laughed, one of those irritating, senseless, chuckle-headed, crack-jawed laughs of his. They do make me so wild. I opened the bag and packed the boots in, and then, just as I was going to close it, a horrible idea occurred to me. Had I packed my toothbrush? I don't know how it is, but I never do know whether I've packed my toothbrush. My toothbrush is a thing that haunts me when I'm traveling and makes my life a misery. I dream that I haven't packed it and wake up in a cold perspiration and get out of bed and hunt for it. And in the morning, I pack it before I've used it and have to unpack it again to get to it. And it is always the last thing I turn out of the bag. And then I repack and forget it and have to rush upstairs for it in the last moment and carry it away to the railway station wrapped up in my pocket handkerchief. Of course, I had to turn every mortal thing out now, and of course I could not find it. I rummaged the things up into much the same state that they must have been before the world was created, and when chaos reigned. Of course, I found George's and Harris's eighteen times over, but I couldn't find my own. I put the things back one by one and held everything up and shook it. Then I found it inside a boot. I repacked once more. When I had finished, George asked if the soap was in. I said I didn't care a hang whether the soap was in or whether it wasn't, and I slammed the bag to and strapped it and found that I had packed my tobacco pouch in it and had to reopen it. It got shut up finally at 10.5 p.m., and then there remained the hampers to do. Harris said that we should be wanting to start in less than 12 hours' time, and thought that he and George had better do the rest, and I agreed and sat down, and they had to go. They began in a light-hearted spirit, evidently intending to show me how to do it. I made no comment. I only waited. When George is hanged, Harris will be the worst packer in the, this world, and I looked at the piles of plates and cups and kettles and bottles and jars and pies and stoves and cakes and tomatoes, etc., and felt that the thing would soon become exciting. It did. They started with breaking a cup. That was the first thing they did. They did that just to show you what they could do and to get you interested. Then Harris packed the strawberry jam on top of a tomato and squashed it, and they had to pick out the tomato with a teaspoon. And then it was George's turn, and he trod on the butter. I didn't say anything, but I came over and sat on the edge of the table and watched them. It irritated them more than anything I could have said. I felt that. It made them nervous and excited, and they stepped on things and put things behind them and then couldn't find them when they wanted them, and they packed the pies at the bottom and put heavy things on top and smashed the pies in. They upset salt over everything, and as for the butter... I never saw two men do more with one and two pence worth of butter in my whole life than they did. After George had got it off his slipper, they tried to put it in the kettle. 
it wouldn't go in, and what was in wouldn't come out. They did scrape it out at last, and put it down on a chair, and Harris sat on it, and it stuck to him, and they went looking for it all over the room. I'll take my oath I put it down on that chair, said George, staring at the empty seat. I saw you do it myself, not a minute ago, said Harris. Then they started around the room again, looking for it. Then they met again in the center and stared at one another. Most extraordinary thing I ever heard of, said George. So mis- so mysterious, said Harris. Then George got round to the back of Harris and saw it. Why, here it is all the time, he exclaimed indignantly. Where, cried Harris, spinning round. Stand still, can't you, roared George, flying after him. And they got it off and packed it in the teapot. Montmorency was in it all, of course. Montmorency's ambition in life is to get in the way and be sworn at. If he can squirm in anywhere where he particularly is not wanted, and be a perfect nuisance and make people mad and have things thrown at his head, then he feels his day has not been wasted. To get somebody to stumble over him and curse him steadily for an hour is his highest aim and object, and when he has succeeded in accomplishing this, his conceit becomes quite unbearable. He came and sat down on things, just when they were wanted to be packed, and he labored under the fixed belief that, whenever Harris or George reached out their hand for anything, it was his cold, damp nose that they wanted. He put his leg into the jam, and he worried the teaspoons, and he pretended that the lemons were rats, and he got into the hamper and killed three of them before Harris could land him with a frying pan. (sighs) Harris said I encouraged him. I didn't encourage him. A dog like that don't want any encouragement. It's the natural, original sin that is born in him that makes him do things like that. The packing was done at 12.5 or 12.50, and Harris sat on the big hamper and said he hoped nothing would be broken. George said that if anything was broken, it was broken, which reflection seemed to comfort him. He also said he was ready for bed. We were all ready for bed. Harris was to sleep with us that night, and we went upstairs. We tossed for beds, and Harris had to sleep with me. He said, Do you prefer the inside or the outside, Jay? I said I generally preferred to sleep inside a bed. Harris said it was old. George said, What time shall I wake you fellows? Harris said, Seven. I said, No, six, because I wanted to write some letters. Harris and I had a bit of a row over it, but at last split the difference and said half past six. Wake us at six thirty, George, we said. George made no answer, and we found, on going over, that he had been asleep for some time, so we placed the bath where he could tumble into it on getting out in the morning, and went to bed ourselves. Chapter 5 Mrs. P. arouses us, George, the sluggard, the weather forecast swindle, our luggage, depravity of the small boy, the people gather round us, we drive off in great style and arrive at Waterloo, innocence of southwestern officials concerning such worldly things as trains. We are afloat, afloat in an open boat. It was Mrs. Poppets that woke me up next morning. She said, Do you know that it's nearly nine o'clock, sir? Nine o'what? I cried, starting up. Nine o'clock, she replied through the keyhole. I thought you was oversleeping yourselves. I woke Harris and told him. He said, I thought you wanted me to get up at six. So I did, I answered. Why didn't you wake me? Why didn't you wake me? He retorted. Now we shan't get on the water till after twelve. I wonder you take the trouble to get up at all. Um, I replied, lucky for you that I do. If I hadn't woken you, you'd have lain there for the whole fortnight. We snarled at one another in this strain for the next few minutes, when we were interrupted by a defiant snore from George. 
it reminded us, for the first time since our being called, of his existence. There he lay, the man who had wanted to know what time he should wake us, on his back, with his mouth wide open and his knees stuck up. I don't know why it should be, I am sure, but the sight of another man asleep in bed when I am up maddens me. It seems to me so shocking to see the precious hours of a man's life, the priceless moments that will never come back to him again, being wasted in mere brutish sleep. There was George, throwing away in hideous sloth the inestimable gift of time, his valuable life, every second of which he would have been every second of which he would have to account for hereafter, passing away from him unused. He might have been stuffing himself with eggs and bacon, irritating the dog, or flirting with his sl slavey, instead of sprawling there, sunk in soul-clogging oblivion. It was a terrible thought. Harris and I appeared to be struck by it at the same instant. We determined to save him, and in this noble resolve our own dispute was forgotten. We flew across and slung the clothes off him, and Harris landed him with one with a slipper, and I shouted in his ear, and he awoke. "'Was there more? he observed, sitting up. "'Get up, you fat-headed chunk!' roared Harris. "'It's quarter to ten. "'What?' he shrieked, jumping out of bed into the bath. "'Who the thunder put this thing here?' We told him he must have been a fool not to see the bath. We finished dressing, and when it came to the extras, we remembered that we had packed the toothbrushes and the brush and comb. That toothbrush of mine will be the death of me, I know. And we had to go downstairs and fish them out of the bag. And when we had done that, George wanted the shaving tackle. We told him that he would have to go without shaving that morning, as we weren't going to unpack that bag again for him, nor for anyone like him. He said, Don't be absurd. How can I go into the city like this? It was certainly rather tough on the city, but what cared we for human suffering? As Harris said in his common, vulgar way, the city would have to lump it. We went downstairs to breakfast. Montmorency had invited two other dogs to come and see him off, and they were whiling away the time by fighting on the doorstep. We calmed them with an umbrella and sat down to chops and cold beef. Harris said, The great thing is to make a good breakfast, and he started with a couple of chops, saying that he would take these while they were hot, as the beef could wait. George got hold of the paper and read us out the boating fatalities and the weather forecast, which latter prophesied rain, cold, wet to fine, whatever more than usually ghastly thing in weather that may be, Occasional local thunderstorms, east wind, with general depression over the Midland counties, London and Channel, bar falling. I do think that of all the silly, irritating tomfoolishness by which we are plagued, this weather forecast fraud is about the most aggravating. It forecasts precisely what happened yesterday or the day before, and pre precisely the opposite of what is going to happen today. I remember a holiday of mine being completely ruined one late autumn by our paying attention to the weather report of the local newspaper. Heavy showers with thunderstorms may be expected today, it would say on Monday, and so we would give up our picnic and stop indoors all day, waiting for the rain, and people would pass the house, going off in wagonettes and coaches as jolly and merry as could be, the sun shining out and not a cloud to be seen. Ah, we said as we stood looking out at them through the window, won't they come home soaked? And we chuckled to think how wet they were going to get and came back and stirred the fire, and got our books, and arranged our specimens of seaweed and cockle shells. By twelve o'clock, with the sun pouring into the room, the heat became quite oppressive, and we wondered when those heavy showers and occasional thunderstorms were we going to were going to begin. Ah, they'll come in the afternoon, you'll find, we said to each other. Oh, won't those people get wet? What a lark! 
At one, the landlady would come in to ask if we weren't going out, as it seemed such a lovely day. No, no, we replied with a knowing chuckle. Not we. We don't mean to get wet. No, no. And when the afternoon was nearly gone, and still there was no sign of rain, we tried to cheer ourselves up with the idea that it would come down all at once, just as people had started for home, and were not were out of the reach of any shelter, that they would thus get more drenched than ever. But not a drop ever fell, and it finished a grand day and a lovely night after it. The next morning we would read that it was going to be a warm, fine-to-set-fair day, much heat, and we would dress ourselves in flimsy things and go out, and half an hour after we had started it would commence to rain hard, and a bitterly cold wind would spring up, and both would keep on steadily for the whole day, and we would come home with colds and rheumatism all over us and go to bed. The weather is a thing that is beyond me altogether. I never can understand it. The barometer is useless. It is as misleading as the newspaper forecast. There was one hanging up in a hotel at Oxford, at which I was staying last spring, and when I got there it was pointing to set fair. It was simply pouring with rain outside, and had and had been all day, and I couldn't quite make matters out. I tapped the barometer, and it jumped up and pointed to very dry. The boot stopped as he was passing and said he expected it meant tomorrow. I fancied that maybe it was thinking of the week before last, but Boots said, no, he thought not. I tapped it again the next morning, and it went up still higher, and the rain came down faster than ever. On Wednesday I went and hit it again, and the pointer went round towards set fair, very dry, and much heat, until it was stopped by the peg and it couldn't go any further. It tried its best, but the instrument was built, so that it couldn't prophesy fine weather any harder than it did without breaking itself. It evidently wanted to go on and prognosticate drought, and water famine, and sunstroke, and simooms, and such things, but the peg prevented it, and it had to be content with pointing to the mere commonplace very dry. Meanwhile, the rain came down in a steady torrent, and the lower part of the town was under water, owing to the river having overflowed. Boots said it was evident that we were going to have a prolonged spell of grand weather sometime, and read out a poem which was printed over the top of the oracle about long foretold, long past, short notice, soon past. The fine weather never came that summer. I expect that machine must have been referring to the following spring. Then there are those new style of barometers, the long straight ones. I can never make head or tail of those. There is one side for 10 a.m. yesterday, and one side for 10 a.m. today, but you can't always get there as early as 10, you know. It rises or falls for rain and fine, with much or less wind, and one end is N-L-Y and the other E-L-Y. What's E-L-Y got to do with it? And if you tap it, it doesn't tell you anything. And then you've got to correct it to sea level and reduce it to Fahrenheit, and even then I don't know the answer. But who wants to be foretold the weather? It is bad enough when it comes, without our having the misery of knowing about it beforehand. The prophet we like is the old man who, on the particularly gloomy-looking morning of some day, when we particularly want it to be fine, looks round the horizon with a per particularly knowing eye, and says, Oh no, sir, I think it will clear up all right. It will break all right enough, sir. Ah, he knows, we say, as we wish him good morning, and start off. Wonderful how these old fellows can tell. And we feel an affection for that man which is not at all lessened by the circumstances of its not clearing up, but continuing to rain steadily all day. Ah, well, we feel he did his best. For the man that prophesies us bad weather, on the contrary, we entertain only bitter and revengeful thoughts. Going to clear up, do you think? We shout cheerily as we pass. As we pass. 
Well, no, sir. I'm afraid it's settled down for the day, he replies, shaking his head. Stupid old fool, he mutter. Stupid old fool, we mutter. What's he know about it? And if his portent proves correct, we come back feeling still more angry against him, and with a vague notion that, somehow or other, he has had something to do with it. It was too bright and sunny on this especial morning for George's blood-curdling readings about bar falling, atmospheric disturbance passing in an oblique line over southern Europe, and pressure increasing, to very much upset us. And so, finding that he could not make us wretched, and it was only wasting his time, he sneaked the cigarette that I had carefully rolled up for myself and went. Then Harris and I, having finished up the few things left on the table, carted out our luggage onto the doorstep and waited for a cab. There seemed a good deal of luggage when we put it all together. There was the Gladstone and the small handbag, and the two hampers, and a large roll of rugs, and some four or five overcoats and mackintoshes, and a few umbrellas, and then there was a melon by itself in a bag, because it was too bulky to go in anywhere, and a couple of pounds of grapes in another bag, and a Japanese paper umbrella, and a frying pan, which, being too long to pack, we wrapped round with brown paper. It did look a lot, and Harris and I began to feel rather ashamed of it, though why we should be, I can't see. No cab came by, but the street boys did, and got interested in the show, apparently, and stopped. Biggs boy was the first to come round. Biggs is our greengrocer, and his chief talent lies in securing the services of the most abandoned and unprincipled errand boys that civilization has as yet produced. If anything more than usually villainous in the boy line crops up in our neighborhood, we know that it is Briggs's latest. I was told that at the time of the great Coram Street murder, it was promptly concluded by our street that Briggs's boy, for that period, was at the bottom of it, and had he not been able, in reply to the severe cross-examination to which he was subje subjected by number 19 when he called there for orders the morning after the crime, assisted by number 21, who happened to be on the step at the time, to prove a complete alibi, it would have gone hard with him. I didn't know Briggs's boy at that time, but from what I have seen of them since, I should not have attached much importance to that alibi myself. Biggs's boy, as I have said, came round the corner. He was evidently in a great hurry when he first dawned upon the vision, but on catching sight of Harris and me on Montmorency and the things, he eased up and stared. Harris and I frowned at him. This might have wounded a more sensitive nature, but Briggs's boys, Biggs's boys are not, as a rule, touchy. He came to a dead stop, a yard from our step, and leaning up against the railing and selecting a straw to chew, fixed us with his eye. He evidently meant to see this thing out. In another moment, the grocer's boy passed on the opposite side of the street. Biggs's boy hailed him. Hi, ground floor of 42's a-movin'. The grocer's boy came across, took up a position on the other side of the step. Then the young gentleman from the boot shop stopped and joined Biggs's boy while the empty can superintendent from the blue posts took up an independent position on the curb. "'They ain't a-going to starve, are they?' said the gentleman from the boot shop. "'Ah, you'd want to take a thing or two with you,' re retorted the blue posts, "'if you was a-going to cross the Atlantic in a small boat.' "'They ain't a-going to cross the Atlantic,' struck in Biggs's boy. "'They're a-going to find Stanley.' By this time, quite a small crowd had collected, and people were asking each other what was the matter." One party, the young and giddy portion of the crowd, held that it was a wedding, and pointed out Harris as the bridegroom, while the elder and more thoughtful among the populace inclined to the idea that it was a funeral, and that I was probably the corpse's brother. 
At last, an empty cab turned up. It is a street where, as a rule, and when they are not wanted, empty cabs pass at the rate of three a minute and hang about and get in your way. And packing ourselves and our belongings into it and shooting out a couple of Montmorency's friends, who had evidently sworn never to forsake him, we drove away amidst the cheers of the crowd, Biggs's boy shying a carrot after us for luck. We got to Waterloo at eleven and asked where the eleven five started from. Of course nobody knew. Nobody at Waterloo ever does know where a train is going to start from, or where a train, when it does start, is going to, or anything about it. The porter who took our things thought it would go from number two platform, while another porter, with whom he discussed the question, had heard a rumor that it would go from number three. The station master, on the other hand, was convinced it would start from the local. To put an end to the matter, we went upstairs and asked the traffic superintendent and he told us that he had just met a man who said he had seen it at number three platform. We went to number three platform, but the authorities there said that they rather thought that the train was the Southampton Express, or else the Windsor Loop. They weren't sure it wasn't the Kingston train, though why they were sure it wasn't, they couldn't say. Then our porter said he thought that it must be it on the high-level platform. He said he thought he knew the train. So he went to the high-level platform and saw the engine driver and asked him if he was going to Kingston. He said he couldn't say for certain, of course, but that he rather thought he was. Anyhow, if he wasn't the 11.05 for Kingston, he said he was pretty confident he was the 9.32 for Virginia Water, or the 10 a.m. Express for the Isle of Wight, or somewhere in that direction, and we should all know when we got there. We slipped half a crown into his hand and begged him to be the 11.05 for Kingston. Nobody will ever know on this line, we said, what you are or where you're going. You know the way. You slip off quietly and go to Kingston. "'Well, I don't know, gents,' replied the noble fellow, "'but I suppose some train's got to go to Kingston, and I'll do it. "'Give me the half-crown.' "'Thus we got to Kingston by the London and Southwestern Railway. "'We learnt afterwards that the train we had come by "'was really the Exeter Mail, "'and that they had spent hours at Waterloo looking for it, "'and nobody knew what had become of it. "'Our boat was waiting for us at Kingston just below the bridge, "'and to it we wended our way, "'and round it we stored our luggage, "'and into it we stepped. "'Are you all right, sir?' said the man. Right it is, we answered, and with Harris at the skulls and I at the tiller lines and Montmorency, unhappy and deeply suspicious in the prow, we shot out onto the waters which, for a fortnight, were to be our home.'